How's everyone doing? It's December 26, 2021. Right about 4 p.m. 4.02 p.m. on December 26, 2021. And we're going to listen to this Sunday show by Chuck Todd. Meet the press. He interviews Nicole Hannah Jones, professor and author of the book 1619 Project. It's about a 17 minute and change interview. Enjoy. When the 1619 Project was published by the New York Times, it became an object of both admiration and criticism. The series of essays was named for when African slaves were first taken to these shores, and it places slavery and its legacy at the center of American history. Journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones won a Pulitzer Prize for the project, but also came under criticism for suggesting that the American Revolution itself was fought to preserve slavery. Few people have spent more time researching, thinking, and writing about race in America than Nicole Hannah-Jones, and she joins me now. Nicole, welcome to Meet the Press. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, let me just start with this. Uh, describe in your own words what the 1619 Project is uh, and its mission. The 1619 Project is a book now. It began as a uh, magazine and a special section of the New York Times. And what it is, is it marks the advent of African slavery in the original 13 colonies. So 1619 is the year the first Africans were sold into slavery in Virginia. And what the project argues through a series of essays is that very little about American life today has been left untouched by the legacy of slavery and the anti-blackness that developed uh, in order to justify it. So it is trying to place the legacy slavery as an institution, which is one of the oldest institutions in America, really at the center of the story that we tell ourselves about our country and to explain uh, so much about American life through that lens. Uh, before I get into some of the larger uh, back and debate about this, the specific on the American Revolution, you have since pulled back on, on asserting that. What, what has made you pull back? I wouldn't say that we pulled back. And in fact, if you read the expanded essay that is now in the book, you'll see uh, that we strengthened the case about the role of slavery in the American Revolution. What we did do with the original text was clarify. So the original sentence said one of the primary reasons that the colonists decided to declare their independence from Great Britain was to preserve slavery. And what we added were two words, sum up. So now it read, reads, excuse me, one of the primary reasons that some of the colonists uh, decided to declare their independence uh, from Great Britain was to preserve slavery. So it was just clarifying that we clearly didn't mean all colonists and all colonies, but the case is pretty clear if you look at the scholarship that in Virginia and South Carolina, that protecting slavery was a reason to join a revolution that was started in the northern colonies, but that many southern colonists didn't actually think involved them or needed to. And I guess that's where uh, there is a debate among historians who say, well, wait a minute. Uh, look, 
this became a coalition of whatever it took to go against uh, the Brits and the same north-south split that essentially has defined this country even today was there at the American Revolution. You accept that part of it, that the, the northerners weren't there, weren't fighting the revolution to keep slavery. Perhaps some of the southern states used it as a rationale. Absolutely. And that's really, that's what the argument is. It's not saying that in all 13 colonies, in all colonists, but certainly Virginians, where uh, at that time, nearly half of the population was enslaved, where Lord Dunmore uh, threatened to unleash the enslaved against the colonists if they didn't uh, end their revolutionary efforts, uh, that preserving slavery became a major reason for those reluctant colonists to join the revolution. But Virginia, of course, is one of the most important colonies in the American Revolution. Virginians write our founding documents. A Virginian wrote our Declaration, our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, our first president. So, uh, yes, it, it, there always has been this north-south divide based on the level of uh, dependence that the colonies had on the institution of slavery. But to be clear, you know, I didn't make that up. This is based on historiography of scholars such as Alan Taylor, who's won two Pulitzer Prizes, Woody Holton, um, Benjamin Quarles, uh, Gerald Horn. So there, there is contention within the field of historiography, but I am not someone who just pulled this out of thin air. So no, I, where there is debate, right. the debate is within the field and should not be about the credibility of the project. Let me ask you this. I think, uh, it, it, is America alone here? Or was this, you know, for instance, you look at the Western Hemisphere alone. Um, we can go to Brazil. We know that there was, they had slavery. They didn't abolish slavery uh, in, until the late 19th century. Um, and I think some of the critiques is you paint this as a uniquely American issue when sadly, uh, you know, civilization and slavery went hand in hand for a couple thousand years. Well, one no one who actually reads the project can say that the project paints this as a, slavery as a uniquely American institution, because clearly it doesn't. And the project talks about slavery across the Americas. Uh, we don't talk about all of slavery in all of the world, because that expectation is, a, uh, is never uh, the expectation of scholarship on the Americas. When we talk about the American Civil War, the expectation isn't that you talk about every civil war in global history. Um, so I don't understand why that's an argument when we talk about American slavery. The truth is, though, that chattel slavery, racialized chattel slavery, was unique to the Americas, that a system that transported 13 million people across the Atlantic Ocean and held them in perpetual bondage for more than 250 years, that was racialized, uh, and where people were turned into commodities that could be bought and sold and traded and had uh, no rights or privileges within the country, and that this happened in a country that was founded on ideas of individual liberty. Brazil didn't have a constitution that said all... Um, we uh, are a government of the people by the people. They didn't begin with a, a founding document that says we hold these truths to be evident that all men are created equal. Neither did Cuba, neither did Jamaica, but the United States did. So what is unique? No, chattel slavery was not unique to the United States. But what was unique was that we practiced chattel slavery while saying and professing these beliefs in equality and universal rights of men. And that's what this project is trying to do. The 1619 Project, which is very clearly stated, is about slavery in the United States of America. It is not a project about slavery in the world. It is not a project about slavery. It is a project about how does the impact of a country 
founded on ideals of freedom, that engages in chattel slavery, that, by the way, was third to the last of all the countries in the Americas to abolish slavery, and the only one besides uh, Haiti, where enslaved people rose up and overthrew their masters that required a war to abolish slavery. Um, we are unique in that way. And this is a project looking at the unique impact that slavery has had on the United States. Look, I think the most healthy part of this project is that it has sparked debate. That's the whole point. And, and there's nothing healthier than when historians get together. And yes, you know, and, and if you think about it over time, lots of our historical understandings have changed because there's been new scholarship, because there's been new education. So let me ask you this. Did you intend for the 1619 Project to become public school curriculum, or did you intend it to start a debate to improve the curriculum of how we teach American history? Well, when I first pitched the project, I simply pitched it as a work of journalism, which it is. I mean, I, I'm a journalist at the New York Times, and I pitched a project to run as a piece of journalism in the New York Times. Now, uh, some months in, as we were working on the project, we began to talk about that this could be a great learning tool for students, particularly uh, we were thinking about the broadsheet that ran in partnership with the National Museum of African American History and Culture that talks about teaches slavery through objects found in that museum. Now, the New York Times has an education division. The New York Times regularly turns its journalism journalism in the curriculum, as does the Pulitzer Center, who we ultimately partnered with. Uh, they are constantly turning works of journalism into curriculum. It's only become controversial because people have decided to make the 1619 Project controversial. But this is something very normal. Many newspapers uh, discount their newspapers to get journalism into schools. Uh, so no, I didn't uh, I didn't initially intend it to be part of curriculum, but I don't understand why that's problematic. And frankly, most educators are using it to supplement um, standard curriculum. No one is replacing the old curriculum with the 1619 Project. And I certainly didn't expect this type of controversy, no. I think in the last two years, a lot of people have come to realize that our teaching of, of history has been, uh, uh, has been incomplete to be generous, particularly on, I would say, whether it's Reconstruction. I mean, we start to talk about glossing over that. Or specifically, think about the Tulsa Massacre and how so many people have said, I didn't get taught that. I, didn't get, I, I grew up in Miami, Florida. I can, didn't get taught about Axe Handle uh, Sunday in Jacksonville. Uh, when you look at our public schools, 8 in 10 public school teachers uh, are white, yet half of the public school students are students of color. How do we improve that aspect of education in America? So I don't think that, you know, we have to have, we should definitely have more black and Latino educators because that is what our country looks like. But I don't think you have to be black or Latino in order to teach a more accurate history. The problem is that our teacher preparation programs are not equipping educators with the knowledge that they need to teach this history better. Um, when you look at the survey by uh, Teaching Tolerance, they found that about half or slightly more than half of American educators say they don't feel equipped to teach about slavery. And they really struggle to teach about slavery. It's kind of... Um, ironic that we're seeing these bills being passed, these anti-history laws to make it more difficult to teach about slavery and racism and our, our country's long history of racism, when in fact, 
we have educators who are struggling the opposite way. They're having holding mock mock slave auctions in their classrooms. They're having students do assignments where they have to list the pros and cons of slavery because they really don't know how to teach this very well. And that's because as a country, we have not honestly grappled with the truth about our history. And the history we learn is often about nationalism and patriotism, right. but not about telling where the truth. Where should that come from? Truth. You know, I've thought about this and, and I, you know, I, I don't th I know that if government says this is our history, people are going to say, oh, I'm not letting government historians decide what our history is. This seems to be a real challenge uh, in an open society is how do we get agreement on this, especially when, you know, parents want to have a look. A Virginia governor's race was arguably decided on uh, the strength of how how influential should parents be on curriculum. How do we do this? Well, I would say the governor's race in Virginia was decided based on the success of a right-wing propaganda campaign that told white parents that they needed to fight against their children being indoctrinated um, as race as being called racist. But that was a propaganda campaign. And there are a lot of black parents in Virginia. There are a lot of Latino parents in Virginia, and they were not being featured in that coverage. And what they wanted for their kids' education, which is more teaching about race, more teaching about the history of racism, um, seem to have fallen on deaf ears. So I think we should frame that question properly. And I don't really understand this idea that parents should decide what's being taught. I'm not a professional educator. I don't have a degree in social studies or science. We send our children to school because we want them to be taught by people who have an expertise in the subject area. And that is not my job. When the, when the uh, governor or, or the candidate said that he didn't think parents should be, be deciding what's being taught in school, he was panned for that. But but that's just the fact. Um, this is why we send our children to school and don't homeschool, because these are the professional educators who have the expertise to teach social studies, to teach history, to right. teach science, to teach literature. And I think we should leave that to the educators. Yes, you, you should have some say. But school is not about simply confirming our worldview. Schools should uh, teach us to question. They should uh, teach us how to think, not what to think. At what age? And I wouldn't want my Is there child an age restriction in your mind? To a school. You know, there's this. About uh, teaching te what? Teaching sort of, when it, when it comes to teaching our past, you know, there's this, and I, I think it's just coming basically through a racial lens, but there's this, you know, parents are saying, hey, don't, don't make my kid feel guilty. Um, and, you know, and I know a parent of color is going, what are you talking about? You know, I've got to teach reality. When do you do it and how do you do it? Well, I, I think you should just think a little bit about your framing. You said parents and then you said parents of color. So the right. white, white parents silent, and parents and of color, white, You're, you know, right. fair, white fair parents point. Yeah. are not representing, as a matter of fact, white parents are representing fewer than half of all public school parents. Right. And yet they have an outsized voice in this debate. Uh, I have a child who just by watching the news when she was eight years old, she saw Laquan McDonald, a teenager in Chicago, get shot 16 times by police on CBS in the morning show. And she asked me, why did that? Why did they kill that boy? So I can't wait to have these conversations with my child. And I don't think that uh, we should be asking what is what is the appropriate age. I think we should be asking what are the appropriate conversations at that age. But our children are being raised in a racialized society. They are noticing things. They have questions. And I don't think teaching an accurate rendering of history 
is about making white children feel guilty. I don't know an educator. I, I, I've i been covering education for two decades. I've never seen a, a teacher of any race tell a white child, you are responsible for what happened in the past. Um, I just don't think that that's happening. And even all of the people who have claimed that that has happened have not been able to produce a shred of evidence that that's true. I think some students who are white probably walk away from some of these lessons feeling very uncomfortable, as we should. We should be uncomfortable uh, with the hard parts of our past. And a master educator knows how to give those lessons without making students internalize this this feelings of, of racism. Uh, at the end of the day, um, this politicizing of this uh, it's clearly been weaponized. You've described it, I think, pretty well on the weaponization of it. Um, do you think simply time will get us past this? How, how can we get over this hump? Um, I don't know, honestly. I'm quite concerned about what's happening in our country because, as you know, my project, which is a work of journalism by The New York Times, is banned by name in Georgia, Florida, in Texas, uh, there are efforts to ban the teaching of this history in Oklahoma and South Dakota, in Tennessee. And when we think about what type of society bans books or bans ideas, that is not a free and tolerant democratic society. That is a society that is veering towards uh, authoritarianism. So unless people who believe in free speech, who believe in uh, our children being intellectually challenged, begin to get organized and speak up, I think we're going into a dark age of, of repression and suppression of the truth. Uh, and uh, really, um, these laws are paving the way uh, for the taking of other political rights, like voting rights, like women's reproductive rights, like uh, rights for LGBTQ people. Uh, so we're going to have to decide what kind of country we want to be. Call Hannah Jones, The New York Times. Really appreciate you coming on uh, and sharing your perspective with us. Thanks for this. Thank you. For a little history quiz, what famous American gave a speech decrying how black citizens live on an island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity and of the tranquilizing drug of gradualism? Answer, it was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And he said it in his famous I Have a Dream speech. The fact that key parts of one of the most famous speeches in all of American history are unknown to so many of us is simply indicative of how we've struggled to tell the history of not just Dr. King, but of all African-Americans in this country. Joining me now are Keith Mays, an associate professor of African-American and African studies at the University of Minnesota, and Joshua Johnson, anchor of Now Tonight, my colleague also at NBC News and NBC News Now. Welcome to both of you. Keith, let me frame the conversation this way. Rashid Darden in Education Week back in 2018 wrote the following. And I think it, it very much is true today. Students don't typically have a great understanding of the Civil War, Reconstruction, the Jim Crow South, the racist North. There's really not much after Harriet Tubman until we get to the Civil Rights Movement. Their body of knowledge is focused on those couple of things rather than the interconnectedness, the intersections. And, and I think that's why I want to have this conversation and not almost utter the words uh, critical race theory, because really what this is about is how do we improve the education of history in America. Keith, where do we begin? We begin by telling the truth, Chuck. I mean, I think you are right that all of these things are interconnected. Uh, I was listening to the conversation you had with Nicole Hannah-Jones, and 1619 in, indeed is a starting point 
but we have to talk about uh, the black colonial American experience or the experience of, of people of color uh, pre-American Revolutionary War, but also, you know, what was going on in the new, new national period of the uh, turn of the the, the 18th century uh, leading up to uh, the 19th century and the Civil War, abolition, uh, reconstruction, uh, uh, the post-reconstruction period, uh, progressivism. I think that in many ways, Chuck, I think we have missed an opportunity to, to understand what that through line has been from the very beginning, whether it's 1619 when the first 20 Africans were brought here or 1607, uh, when white people uh, came here all the way up to 2021. I mean, I think that there is something that is important for us to understand as we connect the dots throughout uh, the, in all of the centuries uh, that this country has been uh, the United States, even the, uh, the colonial period. You know, Joshua, we also have this other pattern when we do teach uh, parts of African-American histories. We fight it. Think the do- Just think about the Dr. King holiday. Then when it's accepted, it gets watered down. Think about how I opened this segment about how, you know, how few people actually know all of the contents and substance of the I Have a Dream speech. How do we get out of that trap? Well, I think first we have to decide how much you need to know and when. I mean, there's a reason that we think carefully about the way that we write stories for the news. We don't tell you everything all at once. We have to figure out what to tell you first and then what to tell you next based on where you are and what you probably already know of the story. I mean, there was a documentary that just came out about the creation of Sesame Street. And one of the first things they did before they created the series was they did research with small children to see what they were already watching. And they used the impact of existing commercial television to build a program that would take children as they were and educate them in line with what they were already exposed to. I think that might be one of the missing pieces. It's not just what we need to tell people, but how we need to listen, how we need to receive where America is now and work with the nation we have to build a nation we want. I mean, in Antonia Hilton's piece earlier, you heard that state lawmaker from Texas talking about not wanting white children to be taught that they're superior just because they're white and that black children are inferior just because they're black. That is a huge win. Think about what that means in the context of the history of this country. Having a white person say they don't want their white children taught that, that's something you can build on. Even if that's a person who's like, critical race theory scares me. Okay, fine. We'll get to that later. Where are you now? I think we don't have a clear understanding of what America is ready to discuss now because that's a need we can meet today. You know, Keith, one of the things I've thought about is, you know, it was 1975 that a that the president then, Gerald Ford, uh, essentially declared February Black History Month. And it has served as a tool for educators to at least begin a uh, some teaching of African-American history. Um, there's a part of me that thinks if, if President Biden, de- if we didn't have that, and President Biden declared it today, we'd be having a, uh, um, a, a very polarizing conversation about it. <laughs> Absolutely right, Chuck. Because, you know, the, the extension of uh, Black History Month from Negro History Week, the great Carter G. Woodson created that uh, back in the uh, 1920s, and it really flourished in the 1930s and 40s. That was the way that we actually taught black history in public schools for many decades, this week uh, of celebration. And, and, and what Carter G. Woodson envisioned 
was this thing that scholars call contributionism. You know, what is the black contribution to science and 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 uh, business and education? And that was a kind of a, a easy, fluffy history to place the black uh, contribution side by side with, with whites. But the civil rights movement did something very important. It demanded that black history uh, is not embraced uh, 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 just in one week of February, but we want to actually begin to talk about what it means to be to be black all year round. And so the, it's really the American bicentennial moment in uh, 1976, Chuck, mm-hmm. that opens up the calendar to extend that week into uh, uh, a th- a three additional weeks into one whole month. But I have to say that uh, black history is still ossified and frozen. Uh, in time, in that one month in the calendar year, and then once uh, February 28th or 29th, depending on the, the year, once that, that goes, we are uh, back to, to, to really talking about, not talking about black history and the concerns of African Americans uh, and, and their, their, uh, the things that, that they care about, whether it's social justice movements or what have you. We don't revisit it again until the next year. So this perennializing, this right. annualizing of black history that's been around uh, since Carter, since the early days of Carter G. Woodson, we have not really moved beyond that, uh, even in 2021. And that feels like, Joshua, how this debate opened up, is that there are educators who are trying to say, you know, it, it isn't a month. This is American history. Uh, good, bad, ugly, American history. And it seems that this is where the pushback comes in. I, look, I'm a cynic. This feels like it's almost all being done for political gain short term. Um, I, I'm an optimist. I think over time we'll get better at this, but I guess the question is how long is it going to take? I think it's happening. I mean, there's another piece of the equation that we can't forget, and that's young people themselves. This debate about talking about race is over. Young people are doing it on their own. They are Googling the pink elephant that you told them not to talk about, and they're fascinated by this. So they're falling down Wikipedia rabbit holes about the truth about race in this country and talking about it with their friends as if this never occurred. I'm just not sure that there's actually going to be as much power in these laws Mm -hmm. as lawmakers think. I think there's going to be a lot of very resentful kids who realize that their parents were trying to hide the truth from them or lie to them about something fundamental about who they are. So... The curriculum is part of it. Young people aren't dumb. They know that if you don't want them to know this, there must be something important there, and they might well Google it behind your back. In fact, I think they already are. I, as with two teenagers in my house, trust me, I'm well aware of that fact. Anyway, Keith Mays, uh, Joshua Johnson, I hope uh, you've both had wonderful uh, New Year's uh, uh, and a wonderful New Year and have had a Merry Christmas. Thank you both for coming on. published by the New York Times, it became an object of both admiration and criticism. The series of essays was named for when African slaves were first taken to these shores, and it places slavery and its legacy at the center of American history. Journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones won a Pulitzer Prize for the project, but also came under criticism for suggesting that the American Revolution itself was fought to preserve slavery. Few people have spent more time researching, thinking, and writing about race in America than Nicole Hannah-Jones, and she joins me now. Nicole, welcome to Meet the Press. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, let me just start with this. Uh, describe in your own words what the 1619 Project is uh, and its mission. 
1619 Project is a book now. It began as a uh, magazine and a special section of the New York Times. And what it is, is it marks the advent of African slavery in the original 13 colonies. So 1619 is the year the first Africans were sold into slavery in Virginia. And what the project argues through a series of essays is that very little about American life today has been left untouched by the legacy of slavery and the anti-blackness that developed uh, in order to justify it. So it is trying to place the legacy slavery as an institution, which is one of the oldest institutions in America, really at the center of the story that we tell ourselves about our country and to explain uh, so much about American life through that lens. Uh, before I get into some of the larger uh, back and debate about this, the specific on the American Revolution, you have since pulled back on, on asserting that. What, what has made you pull back? I wouldn't say that we pulled back. And in fact, if you read the expanded essay that is now in the book, you'll see uh, that we strengthen the case about the role of slavery in the American Revolution. What we did do with the original text was clarify. So the original sentence said one of the primary reasons that the colonists decided to declare their independence from Great Britain was to preserve slavery. And what we added was two words, sum up. So now it read, reads, excuse me, one of the primary reasons that some of the colonists uh, decided to declare their independence uh, from Great Britain was to preserve slavery. So it was just clarifying that we clearly didn't mean all colonists and all colonies, but the case is pretty clear if you look at the scholarship that in Virginia and uh, South Carolina, that protecting slavery was a reason to join a revolution that was started in the northern colonies, but that many southern colonists didn't actually think involved them or needed to. And I guess that's where uh, there is a, a debate among historians who say, well, wait a minute. Uh, look, this became a coalition of whatever it took to go against uh, the Brits and the same north-south split that essentially has defined this country even today was there at the American Revolution. You accept that part of it, that the, the northerners weren't there, weren't fighting the revolution to keep slavery. Perhaps some of the southern states used it as a rationale. Absolutely. And that's really, that's what the argument is. It's not saying that in all 13 colonies, in all colonists, but certainly Virginians, where uh, at that time, nearly half of the population was enslaved, where Lord Dunmore uh, threatened to unleash the enslaved against the colonists if they didn't uh, end their revolutionary efforts, uh, that preserving slavery became a major reason for those reluctant colonists to join the revolution. But Virginia, of course, is one of the most important colonies in the American Revolution. Virginians write our founding documents. A Virginian wrote our Declaration, our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, our first president. So, uh, yes, it, it, there always has been this north-south divide based on the level of uh, dependence that the colonies had on the institution of slavery. But to be clear, you know, I didn't make that up. This is based on historiography of scholars such as Alan Taylor, who's won two Pulitzer Prizes, Woody Holton, um, Benjamin Quarles, uh, Gerald Horn. So there, there is contention within the field of historiography, but I am not someone who just pulled this out of thin air. No, so I, where there is debate, right. the debate is within the field and should not be about the credibility of the project. Let me ask you this. I think, uh, it, it, is America alone here? Or was this, you know, for instance, you look at the Western Hemisphere alone, 
Um, we can go to Brazil. We know that there was, they had slavery. They didn't abolish slavery uh, in, until the late 19th century. Um, and I think some of the critiques is you paint this as a uniquely American issue when sadly, uh, you know, civilization and slavery went hand in hand for a couple thousand years. Well, one, no one who actually reads the project can say that the project paints this as a slavery as a uniquely American institution, because clearly it doesn't. And the project talks about slavery across the Americas. Uh, we don't talk about all of slavery in all of the world, because that expectation is a uh, uh, is never uh, the expectation of scholarship on the Americas. When we talk about the American Civil War, the expectation isn't that you talk about every civil war in global history. Um, so I don't understand why that's an argument when we talk about American slavery. The truth is, though, that chattel slavery, racialized chattel slavery, was unique to the Americas, that a system that transported 13 million people across the Atlantic Ocean and held them in perpetual bondage for more than 250 years, that was racialized, uh, and where people were turned into commodities that could be bought and sold and traded and had uh, no rights or privileges within the country, and that this happened in a country that was founded on ideals of individual liberty. Brazil didn't have a constitution that said all... Um, we uh, are a government of the people by the people. They didn't begin with a, a founding document that says we hold these truths to be evident that all men are created equal. Neither did Cuba, neither did Jamaica, but the United States did. So what is unique? No, chattel slavery was not unique to the United States. But what was unique was that we practiced chattel slavery while saying and professing these beliefs in equality and universal rights of men. And that's what this project is trying to do. The 1619 Project, which is very clearly stated, is about slavery in the United States of America. It is not a project about slavery in the world. It is not a project about slavery. It is a project about how does the impact of a country founded on ideals of freedom that engages in chattel slavery, that by the way, was third to the last of all the countries in the Americas to abolish slavery. And the only one besides uh, Haiti, where enslaved people rose up and overthrew their masters that required a war to abolish slavery. Um, we are unique in that way. And this is a project looking at the unique impact that slavery has had on the United States. Look, I think the most healthy part of this project is that it has sparked debate. That's the whole point. And, and there's nothing healthier than when historians get together. And yes, you know, and, and if you think about it over time, lots of our historical understandings have changed because there's been new scholarship, because there's been new education. So let me ask you this. Did you intend for the 1619 Project to become public school curriculum? Or did you intend it to start a debate to improve the curriculum of how we teach American history? Well, when I first pitched the project, I simply pitched it as a work of journalism, which it is. I mean, I, I'm a journalist at the New York Times, and I pitched a project to run as a piece of journalism in the New York Times. Now, uh, some months in, as we were working on the project, we began to talk about that this could be a great learning tool for students, particularly uh, we were thinking about the broadsheet that ran in partnership with the National Museum of African American History and Culture that talks about teaching slavery through objects found in that museum. Now, the New York Times has an education division. The New York Times regularly turns its journal into curriculum, as does the Pulitzer Center, who we ultimately partnered with. Uh, they are constantly turning works of journalism into curriculum. It's only become controversial because people have decided to make the 1619 Project controversial. But this is something very normal. Many newspapers uh, discount their newspapers to get journalism into schools. Uh, so no, I didn't 
uh, I didn't initially intend it to be part of curriculum, but I don't understand why that's problematic. And frankly, most educators are using it to supplement um, standard curriculum. No one is replacing the old curriculum with the 1619 project. And I certainly didn't expect this type of controversy, no. I think in the last two years, a lot of people have come to realize that our teaching of, of history has been uh, uh, has been incomplete to be generous, particularly on, I would say, whether it's Reconstruction. I mean, we sort of talk about glossing over that or specifically think about the Tulsa massacre and how so many people have said, I didn't get taught that. I didn't. I, I grew up in Miami, Florida. I can, didn't get taught about Axe Handle uh, Sunday in Jacksonville. Uh, when you look at our public schools, eight and 10 public school teachers uh, are white, yet half of the public school students are students of color. How do we improve that aspect of education in America? So I don't think that, you know, we have to have, we should definitely have more black and Latino educators because that is what our country looks like. But I don't think you have to be black or Latino in order to teach a more accurate history. The problem is that our teacher preparation programs are not equipping educators with the knowledge that they need to teach this history better. Um, when you look at the survey by uh, Teaching Tolerance, they found that about half or slightly more than half of American educators say they don't feel equipped to teach about slavery. And they really struggle to teach about slavery. It's kind of... Um, ironic that we're seeing these bills being passed, these anti-history laws to make it more difficult to teach about slavery and racism and our, our country's long history of racism, when in fact, we have educators who are struggling the opposite way. They're having holding mock, mock slave auctions in their classrooms. They're having students do assignments where they have to list the pros and cons of slavery because they really don't know how to teach this very well. And that's because as a country, we have not honestly grappled with the truth about our history and the history we learn is often about nationalism and patriotism, right. but not about telling Where the should that come from? truth. You know, I've thought about this and, and I, you know, I, I don't, th I know that if government says this is our history, people are going to say, oh, I'm not letting government historians decide what our history is. This seems to be a real challenge uh, in an open society is how do we get agreement on this? Especially when, you know, Parents want to have a look. A Virginia governor's race was arguably decided on uh, the strength of how how influential should parents be on curriculum. How do we do this? Well, I would say the governor's race in Virginia was decided based on the success of a right wing propaganda campaign that told white parents that they needed to fight against their children being indoctrinated um, as race as being called racist. But that was a propaganda campaign. And there are a lot of black parents in Virginia. There are a lot of Latino parents in Virginia, and they were not being featured in that coverage. And what they wanted for their kids education, which is more teaching about race, more teaching about the history of racism. Um, seem to have fallen on deaf ears. So I think we should frame that question properly. And I don't really understand this idea that parents should decide what's being taught. I'm not a professional educator. I don't have a degree in social studies or science. We send our children to school because we want them to be taught by people who have an expertise in the subject area. And that is not my job. When the, when the uh, governor or, or the candidate said that he didn't think parents should be be deciding what's being taught in school, 
he was panned for that. But but that's just the fact. Um, this is why we send our children to school and don't homeschool, because these are the professional educators who have the expertise to teach social studies, to teach history, to right. teach science, to teach literature. And I think we should leave that to the educators. Yes, you, you should have some say. But school is not about simply confirming our worldview. Schools should uh, teach us to question. They should uh, teach us how to think, not what to think. At what age? And I wouldn't want my Is there child an age restriction to in your mind? To a school. You know, there's this about uh, teaching te- what? Teaching sort of when it when it comes to teaching our past. You know, there's this, and I, I think it's just coming basically through a racial lens. But there's this. You know, parents are saying, "Hey, don't don't make my kid feel guilty." Um, and you know, and I know a parent of color is going, "What are you talking about? You know, I've got to teach reality." When do you do it and how do you do it? Well, I think you should just think a little bit about your framing. You said parents and then you said parents of color. So the right. white, white parents silent, and parents and of color, white, you're, you know, right. fair, white fair parents point. Yeah. are not representing, as a matter of fact, white parents are representing fewer than half of all public school parents. Right. And yet they have an outsized voice in this debate. Uh, I have a child who just by watching the news when she was eight years old, she saw Laquan McDonald, a teenager in Chicago, get shot 16 times by police on CBS in the morning show. And she asked me, why did that? Why did they kill that boy? So I can't wait to have these conversations with my child. And I don't think that uh, we should be asking what is what is the appropriate age. I think we should be asking what are the appropriate conversations at that age. But our children are being raised in a racialized society. They are noticing things. They have questions. And I don't think teaching an accurate rendering of history is about making white children feel guilty. I don't know an educator. I. I I've been covering education for two decades. I've never seen a, a teacher of any race tell a white child, you are responsible for what happened in the past. Um, I just don't think that that's happening. And even all of the people who have claimed that that has happened have not been able to produce a shred of evidence that that's true. I think some students who are white probably walk away from some of these lessons feeling very uncomfortable as we should. We should be uncomfortable uh, with the hard parts of our past. And a master educator knows how to give those lessons without making students internalize this, this feelings of, of racism. Uh, at the end of the day, um, this politicizing of this, uh, it's clearly been weaponized. You've described it, I think, pretty well on the weaponization of it. Um, do you think simply time will get us past this? How, how can we get over this hump? Um, I don't know, honestly. I'm quite concerned about what's happening in our country because, as you know, my project, which is a work of journalism by the New York Times, is banned by name in Georgia, Florida, in Texas. Uh, There are efforts to ban the teaching of this history in Oklahoma and South Dakota, in Tennessee. And when we think about what type of society bans books or bans ideas. That is not a free and tolerant democratic society. That is a society that is veering towards uh, authoritarianism. So unless people who believe in free speech, who believe in uh, our children being intellectually challenged, begin to get organized and speak up, I think we're going into a dark age of of repression and suppression of the truth. Uh, And uh, really, um, these laws are paving the way 
for the taking of other political rights, like voting rights, like women's reproductive rights, like uh, rights for LGBTQ people. Uh, so we're going to have to decide what kind of country we want to be. Call Hannah Jones, the New York Times. Really appreciate you coming on uh, and sharing your perspective.